Good morning. You know, I, uh, I've tried to explain for my whole life and, and maybe see if I start to believe it myself that I'm not an emotional person. Um, every time I say that, I usually cry more than I, I think I ever have before. But um, I just want to say, given the first opportunity, that what an honor it is to be a part of the assembly and to know that, that, that we get to see firsthand what God is doing right in, in our community where we live in our own families and our own workplaces. The more of you that I get to know and I learn your names and a little bit about your, your story, it, it is impossible to deny that God is up to something good. I know I, I, I would never try to wash over or gloss over the difficulties that, the difficulties that each of us are, are walking through even now. But we cannot afford to forget the good things that God is doing. Amen? And I, I don't think I've ever done this before. I think I say that every time I come up here. It is true. I don't do anything for dramatic effect. I was standing right there doing praise and worship, and I, I, I just felt like God said, I need you to be quiet for a moment. And God spoke to me, and he, he said something that uh, it rattled me a little bit. There's a message that we're going to talk about in just a moment, and we'll get to the word, I promise. But God said, this message is for one person in particular, and he told me who you are. I've, I, I've never had that happen before, and I'm not going to tell you who it is because I don't know this person. I cannot explain the feeling of knowing that God sees you. He knows the burdens that you bear. He knows the burden that your children bear. He knows the, the pain that keeps you awake at night. And so I, I, we're going to get to the word, as I said, and, and it's not just for one person, but there is one person that God brought here today because you are at the end of what you think you are capable of. And if there's one thing I've learned in the last 11 months of going to W.W. Wood and thankful for that job that I was, I, I learned that I had greater capacity than I ever thought that I did. I've done things I didn't know that I could do. I've learned things I didn't know that I could learn. And am I glad that it's coming to an end? Absolutely. <laughs> but I wouldn't trade a moment of it because I've never, I've never felt closer to God than I did as I wept my way to work at 4.30 knowing that God was with me. And God is with you. In your pain, in the darkness of the night, in the morning, God sees you. And I was sharing with, with Beth, she was talking to me Wednesday night about uh, some of the things for the service today, trying to help get ready with the graphics and all of that. And I said, I'm really uncomfortable with this. Because those of you that don't know me, um, I am a bit of a critical person. I take things very seriously. I like to cut up and joke with everybody that I possibly can. But when it comes to talking about God's word, I can get very serious very quickly. And I believe that if we open God's word and we read God's word for even a moment, that it should challenge us to do something different than we did before. Or else it's just another book. And I love to read as much as anybody. But, but if I'm going to read scripture, God's holy word, it should affect me. And as I was preparing for this message, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, so to speak. That, that it just didn't feel like something I was comfortable with because it's too hopeful for me. That sounds like an odd thing to say. We always get to the hope. We always get to the promise of God. And we always get to that place of salvation and offering Jesus to everybody. But 
But along the way, the way that my brain works and, and I process information, I, I, I get to the, the thick of it as quickly as possible because I don't want to waste any time. I don't want to beat around the bush. But everything about this message, I believe, is for one person and for all of us, that there is hope. And as I was studying for this, I felt like God put, put this on my heart, that help is not on the way. Help is not on the way. And the reason for that is, is because help is already here. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. A few Wednesday nights ago, Pastor told us to open, our, open up our Bible to 2 Kings. And I got really nervous that he was going to read this story and teach my message because I didn't have anything else to say. And I'm like, we're like two weeks away, and I, I don't have a lot of time to come up with something else. But we were in 2 Kings chapter 5, if I remember correctly. I'm going to ask you to go to check 2 Kings chapter 6. And there's, this story is special to me for a lot of reasons that don't really apply to today. But I was excited as God laid this on my heart, and we could, we could prepare for it for today. We're going to talk about Elisha. Not Elijah, but the one who came after. I've always appreciated studying the, the life of Elijah because he saw God do things that, that no one else could claim to have seen. Fire from heaven and, and all of these wonderful things. But it was Elisha who came after him, after serving him for many years, who saw God do literally to the number twice as much as Elijah saw. He, he, he learned, he followed, he, he did everything that he could to serve the great man of God. And when the man of God went to be with God, Elisha continued the work and saw God do even more. And we see that in 2 Kings chapter 6. I want to begin reading. I don't want to waste any more time. 2 Kings chapter 6, I want to start in verse 8, if we could. It says, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. If you're looking for the first point of today's message, it is this, that God knows exactly what the enemy is up to. God knows exactly what the enemy is up to. When I was 11 or 12 years old, my parents were invited to become pastors at a church plant in a little town called Dawson Springs, Kentucky. Anybody ever been to Dawson Springs? A few of you. I think we were the whole population for a little while. There's a few, it was a small town, and I, I didn't ever live in a big city, but moving from where I was to Dawson Springs, was, it was a shift, we'll say that. We went to small town, western Kentucky, and my parents, who I love to this day, um, have always been described as strict. Any strict parents out there? You're my favorite people because now I am one. But when I was a kid, I didn't want strict parents. And we moved to a small town. It seemed as if they relaxed on the rules a little bit. We could ride our bikes a little farther. We could stay gone a little more in the day and go all the way to the park and back without supervision. And that was odd to me, and I thought that my parents might just be slipping a little bit, or they just didn't care as much. Why would these strict people calm down so much? 
But then there were, there were the occasional periods in time where my siblings and I would break the rules. Kids do that, even pastor's kids. And we would get home and we would think, well, mom's never going to find out. But by the time we would get our bikes put away and get in the back door, mom would be asking us, why did you do that? And we, our first question was always, well, how do you know? We just did it. My sister, I love her, but she was not very good at not getting caught. But even on the occasion where she thought she had pulled it off, she'd walk in the back door and mom would say, hey, I thought you were supposed to be with Misty. Why were you with that boy? And I, this is the truth. My siblings and I had this conversation growing up. We thought that God was telling my mom what we were doing. My mom's very close to Jesus, but I don't think she's that close. And I figured it out. This is the truth. I'll never forget this. I walked in the back door, coming home from school one day, and my mom was talking on the phone, the ones that you have to pull off the wall, you know, back when we had those. And she was talking to a lady from the church who was tattling on us because we had taken a different way home from school. And this woman told my mother, they passed my store about eight minutes ago. They should be walking in the back door, oh, right about now. She had our pace timed. So it wasn't God that was telling my mom. It was the nosy church members who were spying for her. It's a lot easier to relax the rules when you got spies all over town. And I said, Mom, who was that? She said, you know exactly who it was. Sit down. She didn't care that we figured out her little scheme. Because I think I remember her saying something, well, if they don't tell me, you know God will. And God sometimes will do that. I wish he would start doing it for me because I want to know when my kids are acting up. But the truth is, God really does know. Is he always whispering the enemy's plans into our ear? Wouldn't that be nice if he was? But I, I promise you that this morning, God needs you to hear that he always knows the attacks that are coming against you. And he always knows before they come against you. He has a plan of attack, of offense, but also a plan of defense to protect you. But that leads me to a natural question. Well, well, okay, if God knows, which I believe that he does, why would he ever let me go through any of them in the first place? Why would God allow the enemy to attack me if he knows what the enemy is going to do? Wouldn't it be much simpler if God would just keep me safe all the time? You see... God could have done that for the people of Israel against the Arameans. But God did not kick the Arameans out. He let them roam freely through the land. But God provided them just enough protection to survive, but enough necessary danger to where they could not survive without his voice. If God had simply just kicked the Arameans out by, by, by show of force upon the, the Israelite army's part, they would have thought, well, we did this. We protected ourselves. But God allowed the man of God to know what the enemy was up to so he could tell the king and they could protect their people. But without God's voice, his people would not have survived. And the same is true for each of us today. God is speaking. But he allows us to walk through certain necessary dangers so that we will find ourselves in a place where without him, we cannot survive. You say, well, that sounds awfully cruel. It would be cruel if he didn't prove himself faithful every single time. If God ever fails us, ever, we have the right to say, God, that's not right. 
But think about your circumstances, as difficult as some of them has been, have been, as painful as they were in that moment, and maybe still are. Can you rightly look at God and say, you failed me? God, you were wrong. I promise you, our God is faithful. And you might find yourself right now crying out to heaven for help. But I promise you that help is not on the way because help is already here. You might be facing a circumstance in your life where you just don't know how you're going to get out of it. You don't know how it's going to work out. You think this is it. This is, we're stuck. This is the last straw. I just don't know what to do. I promise you that God does. He knows. And if you will listen, will he tell you exactly what's coming next? I doubt it. He can. But I promise you he will give you exactly what you need for the next step and the next step and everyone after that. Because God always knows exactly what the enemy is up to. Secondly, God is never outnumbered. God is never outnumbered. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, on an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around. By show of hands, how many of you watch the news every single night? Anybody? Anybody watch the news every night? Okay, I was expecting a few more, but that's, you're proving me right. That's great. Okay, how many of you don't watch the news every night? Raise your hand. My people. My people. <laughs> you want to know, I love history. I love current events. But you know what I can't stand is watching the news. Because it's not very hope-filled. Doom and gloom, people dying everywhere. Serious problems. I don't mean to make a joke. But what, what I, I really have a problem with is it seems like every time I do watch the news, there is a growing number of people who have a problem with everything I believe. Here we live in the freest country in the world, and the only thing you can't be is a Christian. Or so they say. And it would feel like at times that we are, are, are in the minority, that this nation that was found on Judeo-Christian values and, and so many of our founding fathers based our, our earliest tenets and convictions, they based them on Israelite law and, and Old Testament law. How far we have fallen, it seems, and it becomes easy for me to despair and say, God, what is happening to this country that I love where I thought it would be easy to win people to Jesus? It seems as if our list of enemies is growing every day. People just don't seem to like us. We love everybody most of the time. It's easy to get overwhelmed. And it's easy to feel as if you're backed into a corner and you are outnumbered. Maybe it's not just as a Christian in this nation. Maybe it's as a Christian in your family. You got saved and everybody that was close to you ran for the hills because they thought you were going to be some weirdo. 
maybe somebody doesn't agree with how you've changed your life and you stop going to the places you would go with your friends and your buddies on the weekend and they just don't get it. They don't know what to do with you, so they isolated you and they, they keep living their life without you in it. How quickly it can become this feeling of alone and isolation and exclusion. But I can tell you this, that you're never alone and you're never outnumbered. I was a teenager, my, my parents were my pastors, and they invited a, a man to come and speak at our church whose name was Zolly Smith, who most recently, until he retired, was the executive director of the Assemblies of God U.S. Missions Department. And I heard Billy Zolly speak, and I was captivated by the way that he would present the word of God and, and his understanding that he had. I heard him speak a total of three times from that day until I graduated from college. And each time he preached the same sermon and told the same stories. And each time, it was as if I'd never heard them before. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. But I, I, I thought back to Brother Zolly's message as I was preparing for this morning because he told a story about the international chess champion. I want to share it with you this morning. There was once a man on vacation who just so happened to be the international chess champion. He had competed in and won multiple chess tournaments around the world, and it was undisputed fact he was the international chess champion. While he was wandering around the city he was visiting, he noticed an art museum just down the road. As he strolled in, the curator of the museum stopped and asked if there were any particular pieces he might be interested in. The man simply replied, no, I, I am the international chess champion, and I'm on vacation after my most recent victory. The curator became very excited and told the international chess champion there was indeed one piece he most definitely, definitely needed to see. He quickly ushered the international chess champion to the middle of the museum where in the most prominent location was displayed a piece simply titled Checkmate. The curator explained it had been painted by one of the artists native to the area and many people came simply to see this work of art. The artist had worked tirelessly to depict the climactic moment when one side was just about to finish off the other. All that remained of the pieces on the ivory side of the board was its king. The king was only able to move one space at a time and had been methodically and systematically surrounded by the dark pieces. And out in front was the dark queen. She was poised to strike the final blow and all would be lost for the white king. This was the picture painted on the canvas. That is why the scene had been named Checkmate. The Ivory King was beaten. Suddenly, the international chess champion spoke up and said, I don't mean to cut you off, but did you say this artist was local? Well, then it will not be difficult for him to come by and take down his art. Puzzled, the curator asked the international chess champion why he would ever ask him to do such a thing. The international chess champion started to walk away, but he called out over his shoulder, the game is not over at all. In fact, the ivory king is going to win. Tell the artist to look at his painting again, because the ivory king still has one more move. I wish somebody would have told me when I was growing up how hard it was going to be to be an adult. I'm not even joking. Somebody should have sat me down and said, listen, I know you think it's all kicks and giggles and sunshine and rainbows, but let me tell you what life is really like, which is what every adult wants to do to every kid. You know, you got bills to pay, kids to feed, projects to complete, jobs to stay on top of, bosses to please, 
Not to mention all the relatives that want to come and visit all the time. It's not an easy thing to navigate. It seems as if the list of things that you are responsible for grows and none of it ever gets done. Are you sure you still want to be an adult? And here I am at 32 today and I say, no, I don't want to be an adult. I'm a Toys R Us kid. <laughs> and my kids don't even know what Toys R Us is. I want to tell you that this week, this week, I have sat with my wife and we have wept together because we don't know what to do about certain things. Sometimes there are questions that there are not answers to. Did you know that? You can bat it around and you can talk about it with as many people as possible, but sometimes adults were just guessing. I don't know what to do, but let's act like we do. I don't know where to go, but I sure know we can't stay here because this isn't any fun either. But friends, I am so thankful that in my feelings of being overwhelmed and alone and exhausted and ready to go backwards in time instead of forward, my God is still right there. He's always there. And never once has our God been surprised. Has he been overwhelmed? Has he been exposed to anything that he wasn't prepared for. I wrote in my notes that God has never been flabbergasted. Think about that. You say, well, nobody says the word flabbergasted. Well, I just did. It's that feeling of, can you believe what just happened? Yes, God can believe it because God knew it was going to happen. Can you believe what they said to me? Can you believe what they did to me? Can you believe that I have to go through this? And yes, God can. We serve the God of breakthrough. We sing it this morning. We serve the God of victory. And we sing it this morning. He has never, he has never lost a fight he was in. There is no force so great that he cannot match it and exceed it. So no matter how long the list of enemies grows, no matter how Difficult it may seem to stand up for what we know is right in love and grace. Our God is able. Our God is greater. It's as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? There is no one. So if you find yourself saying, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, I'm backed into a corner, remember this, that friends, help is not on the way. Help is already here. Because our God knows exactly what our enemy is up to. And our God has never been outnumbered. Amen? And now we get to the part that I just don't like. I hope it's okay to say that when we talk about God's word. But here we are at point number three. Grace will win the day. Grace will win the day. Let's finish up in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 18. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road, this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? 
Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. I love a good action movie. Anybody else out there? Don't leave me alone. You liars. There's more of you. Come on. All right. The action movie is great. I love the suspense. I love the the car chases and the explosions and the bank robberies because it's good versus evil and good always wins. It's simple. It's clean. It makes sense. But imagine your favorite action movie. And it gets to that climactic moment where the bad guy is just whooping on the good guy. They always have to before the end. They're just giving them this world-class beatdown. And then all of a sudden, the good guy finds it within themselves, and they push up off the ground, and they just whoop the tar out of the bad guy. And they show him who's boss because good always wins, and the bad guys always lose. But imagine your favorite movie if it didn't end that way at all. Imagine the good guy gets up off the ground and you think is getting ready to go in and take out the bad guy, but instead comes up and says, come on, bring it in, buddy. Let's talk. Let's hug it out. Surely you were misunderstood as a child. Somebody did you wrong. You're, you're not this person. Let's go, let's go eat together. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Come on. If I went to the movie theater and paid $368 for a movie ticket, And I spent $47 on a bucket of popcorn. And I watched three hours of a movie. And it gets to that point, I'm walking out and I'm getting my money back. And probably somebody else's too. Because that's not how it works. Good and bad don't get along. The bad guys have to lose or something's wrong. So here we look at 2 Kings chapter 6. And Elisha leads the bad guys into the enemy territory takes them right to the foot of the king of Israel, who they've been looking for, but now they cannot hide from. And the king says, well, now we have to kill them because that's what happens to the bad guys. And Elisha says, whoa, I've got an idea. Why don't you cook a big old buffet? Let's have us a little get-together and then send them home. Say, see you later, guys. Come back next time. It doesn't feel right. It just feels wrong. The bad guys were hunting down God's people. They were trying to take over God's land, God's promised land to Abraham. And Elisha has them on the ropes and says, you know what, let's just send them home. And I look at my own life and I say, I don't like that. I don't want the bad guys to get away with it. But friends, I promise you this, grace will win the day. I've been a pastor off and on. I started, I think I preached my first sermon when I was 12 years old. I think I preached the whole book of Job in about eight minutes. (laughs) And I've heard, I've talked to Christians a lot. I love Christians. I'm hard on Christians sometimes, but I love them. But we, we quote these verses from time to time. We have our favorites, the classics. I'm not talking about John 3.16, or, or I'm, I'm talking about the ones that we quote as a reminder to ourselves of who God is and what God's going to do for us, and that's not a bad thing. But as a pastor, as a Christian for, for most of my life, I've heard people quote this verse, I think, more than any. 
Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I don't think we know it in any other translation but King James. We have to throw that saith in there because it makes it more forceful. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I'd never asked anybody this, but I'm pretty sure I know the answer. If I was to say, okay, that is in the Bible, it is. But where is it? Not one person would know. And that bothers me. If I'm going to quote it and I'm going to live it, I better know where it is. But I have to confess, I think I might have whispered it a few times. Because what, what are we saying when we quote that verse? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We're saying someone has wronged me, someone has hurt me, someone has stood against me, and I, I want to take them out back and whoop them. But I don't have to because God's going to get them. That's what we're saying. And we can't wait, or at least I can't, to watch it happen. I want a front row seat, God, when you put them in their place. Put them down. But grace will win the day. Yeah, that verse is in the Bible. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's in a few other places. But it's not there as much as we like to think it is. Because I learned something. It's this, that God cares more about the person who is against me than he does in bringing vengeance on their head. Just a few chapters after that, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, God introduces himself to his people for the very first time after he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the wilderness. God has spent some time with Moses, and he is telling Moses, I'm going to show myself to my people. They need to know who I am, and I am this. Deuteronomy chapter 34. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. I'll read it for you. Verses 5 through 7. This is what God says about himself. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him, Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God describes himself in this same way in the Old Testament alone in Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 145, Jonah chapter 4, Nahum chapter 1, and in about six other places. God introduces himself to us as if we don't know something about him already. He says, if you're going to get to know me, if you're going to follow me and serve me, I need you to know who I am up front. Does God wield the sword of justice? Nobody else can do it like him. Will God bring judgment on those in wickedness and sin and rebellion? Absolutely he will. But not until he has given every living, breathing soul an opportunity to see that he is slow to anger, abounding in love, quick to forgive, and extending love to thousands and thousands upon thousands. If we're going to win the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, maybe we should do it in the same way God showed himself to us. I'm pretty good at telling you what I think I know is right but I'm not as quick to tell you I love you and God loves you. It doesn't feel natural to me because in some sense it feels like I'm telling the bad guys they're going to get off scot-free. You know how I reconcile that? Is that once I was the bad guy in the story. I didn't deserve to get off scot-free. I didn't deserve to know that God was slow to anger and abounding in love. And yet when he came to me, that is what he showed me. 
They don't deserve to get up off the mat and try again. I deserve to be put in the pit and buried deeper and deeper every day. And the truth about my life is that help should not be on the way. That help should not even be here for me. And yet he is. Every time I open my eyes, Jesus is here. My helper. And maybe you're sitting out there today and you're saying, you don't know me, Charles. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the pain that I've caused people. I don't deserve it. Friends, just because we don't feel it doesn't mean it isn't true. Just because you can't accept it for yourself, know that it's still offered to you. There is none, none who cannot accept Jesus. Pastor was just talking a few moments ago about those in the, in the, the chains of addiction. You can find freedom in it, it's in Jesus. Your help is not on the way, friend. He is here for you this morning. You can walk out of here in freedom. Even if you don't believe that you can right now or that you don't deserve to, right now you can because Jesus is here with you. And I said it at first and I want to say it again. I, I, I don't know all of your stories. I don't know all of the pain that you've been through in your life. I would never, never, never discount those things or pretend that I understand it, God forbid, because I don't. And you might say the opposite side, Charles, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they hurt me. You don't know how they, what they took from me. Anything the enemy has taken from you, God can give it back in more. Anything that was done to you, any hurt that you carry, if I don't understand, I know that Jesus does. Hebrews tells us we have a great high priest who has endured all suffering and shame. your help is here this morning. And you might say, well, I want the bad guys to get beaten. I want to see them get what they have coming to them. Friend, be careful. Because if you say that about somebody else, you have to accept the same standard of forgiveness for yourself. That's Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said that. The same measure of forgiveness that you extend to others is the one God must extend to you. So let's start there. Whatever side of that fence you find yourself on, whatever kind of help that you need today, your help is not on the way. Your help is here. Your God always, always knows exactly what the enemy is up to, and your God has never been outnumbered. But remember, in the midst of the fight and the struggle, that ongoing war between good and evil, God cares more about the people, including you and me, than he does about justice and judgment on those who deserve it. It will come. I promise you, judgment will come for all of us. But before we get there, let's accept that God is slow to anger and abounding in love and oh so quick to forgive. Should not the same be said of those of us, his children? Would you do me a favor? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? I made a promise to God a few years ago that I would never preach his word and not give an opportunity for somebody to come to know him. Because I said earlier, and I meant it, when we read God's word, when we study God's word, it should affect us. And it must start with us understanding how far we are from the standard 
Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's God's character. It's God's personality. It's who he is, and then we understand when we look at him, we are not like him. We fall short of him. But in our sin, while we were still sinners, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Christ died for us. So maybe you're here today and you say, well, Charles, maybe I'm the bad guy in this story. And I know what I have coming to me. That doesn't have to be the case, friend. If you're here this morning and you say, well, you said there was hope. You said there was help. His name is Jesus. If you would like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you would like to surrender control of your life and give it to him, it starts by asking him to forgive your sins, all the things you know that you've done are wrong. You put your faith in him. You believe in him that he is the way, the only way to heaven. And you commit this morning to following and serving him all the days of your life. It's a lot, I know. But when you think about all he's done to get you this opportunity, it is nothing.